Hello world and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. We are so happy to be with you here this week. This is Alex coming to you from St. Louis, joined by my two usual illustrious co-hosts. The first of which is my older brother Cody coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? Good, good. Uh, Been a very long day. Just got uh, done calling a baseball game. Also, while I did not have any weird interactions at a place of business this week, I oh did boy. have something kind of odd happen to me earlier today. I think so. so let me just I say, I think, my I, I think people are, are probably starting to look forward to these updates. So I'm glad it's you my, have one. It's my favorite accidental segment. It's what weird shit did Cody get into today? Anyway, go on. Look, this had fucking nothing to do with me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Except that it managed to. So anyway, I was. Uh, home here eating lunch and i turned my sink on to wash my hands and there was no water so ah, i was like a problem the fuck dude and i called the water department and i was like hey i don't have any water what's going on and they were like well um yeah these farmers that were doing something with these farm implements here in town um somehow they managed to sever the main water line oh so they had to shut all the water off or risk like losing all of it. So uh, apparently for a good chunk of the town I live in, there was no water for like three hours this afternoon. Um, I need more on how how these people managed to cut the main water line somehow. But still, that is, you know, that that's just another wonderful, wacky uh, moment in, in my life. That's tough. That's a tough one. Hopefully... Yeah. Uh, you nor anybody else in your town uh, happen to have diarrhea this afternoon. Is that that could have been a rough time? Um, that would have been bad. Yeah, no, it's it's back on now. I did check not long ago, but <laughs> certainly certainly good news in your world. Um, and uh-huh. Sorry about the three uh, three hours of uh, lost washed hands. I just imagine you were just sitting there with your hands like upright and just like staring at them, going, "I need to wash these, and I can't." Well, I what I did was I cut my lunch short and I went back to work and <laughs> washed them there. Is what I did. Sure. Uh, my other my office still had water. My other illustrious co-host is Jack John coming to us from Indianapolis. Jack John, do you have water running at your place? Uh, last I checked, I do have water running. Uh, it it's it's a commodity that I uh, I won't soon take for granted. Hearing Cody's horrible horrible day. You know, I actually oh. It didn't. It didn't even. It wasn't even that big a deal for me because I was in the office most of the afternoon, and then I had to do that baseball game. But like, yeah. if anybody was home and trying to do laundry or anything, just imagine the suburban rage. <laughs> I imagine for like ninety-five percent of the people, this had no effect. But for that five percent, it was the biggest fuck you to their day. <laughs> that is like one of the worst. Mostly, that's like one of the worst feelings whenever you're off at work and like there's some kind of problem at home that you are really hoping is fixed and like that uh-huh. that, that dread of like if i go home and this shit isn't fixed, like the most common is like if the internet's out or something like that right. or the power's out like if i get home and this shit isn't fixed i don't know what i'm gonna do that is a terrible <laughs> feeling honestly the the most the the funniest part of this story for me was the poor guy who had to explain to me what happened because, like, you could hear it in his voice that he knew exactly how stupid this was. He'd was also like, probably yeah. had that same exact call 25 times in a row, and he's oh, just fucking tired of explaining of it. He was like, yeah, some idiots uh, ac- accidentally chopped the main water line in half, so 
Oh. But I've, I've been good. Um, I, I spent last night building IKEA furniture, so that's been my entire uh, my entire day, and it's it's been a good day. Did you, um... man? That's like the annoying trifecta. We've yeah. got no water. We've got IKEA furniture, and uh, I don't know. Alex did Freddy shit on the floor or something. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy never shits on the floor, but I, I have been incredibly busy at work this week, so that's my annoying thing. So he may okay. as well have. Yeah. So we, we've got most of the bases covered. Yeah. Jack, did you actually go to Ikea or did you just order yeah. something? I, I actually went to Ikea. There's one like 40 minutes away from me. So oh, uh, I, I, I saw you're nice eating some, some meatballs. I saw yeah, that. so I, I got to eat some Swedish meatballs and some subpar mac and cheese on the way to <laughs> buying expensive Swedish furniture. And that's the Shots Ikea experience right there. at the Ikea mac and cheese. I mean, it's it is built for white people who go to IKEA and eat at their food court. I just happened to be there at five thirty, and I didn't want to fuck with like interstate traffic getting food somewhere else. <laughs> um, did you buy? And any... That's how we got our first cease and desist letter. Did you re- manage to resist the temptation to buy any stuffed animals there? Because that's a tough one. They got I... great stuffed animals at IKEA. I saw the stuffed animals. I almost bought a bunch of Legos. So while I was there, I'm not gonna lie, I looked at them for a while. They got funny names. It is a little. It is a little ham-fisted for IKEA to sell Legos. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it's, let's, it's all it's all there. Let's do every weird Swedish thing. Every weird Swedish <laughs> thing in the world is right here in the store. My one of my mm-hmm. favorite podcasts, uh, podcast about list. I'll give them a shout. out. I was actually just listening to an episode they dropped a couple months ago, um, <clears throat> where the premise of the episode was um, the the guys uh, for their their studio they'd set up for the show. Um, they bought some Ikea furniture and there they bought a, um, uh, like this monkey and I actually looked up what it, what it looked like. And it's very cute, but the Swedish game, the Swedish name that they gave for the, the stuffed monkey is a, uh, jungle skog, or it could also be interpreted <laughs> as they call it jungle skog. And, um, Aww. the whole, e- the whole episode was they, they punted on a regular episode and put, uh, someone had, a. uh, briefly kidnapped Jungle Skoog. And, oh, no. And, uh, they, oh, no. And they put one of the hosts on trial for it. <laughs> so um, so uh, that, I, 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 that's my podcast recommendation for everybody. Podcast about lists. I forget the name of the episode, but uh, The People versus Patrick Dorn is the name of the episode. Uh, check it out. It is quite funny. Not to continue to do things accidentally, but that's literally the plot in American Dad where uh, Bonkers the teddy bear goes missing. Something very similar, and there is a similar conclusion as it turns out. So, oh yeah, it was me. I was just bored. Um, so today, um, speaking of nerdy stuff, it's May the fourth, and um, that means it's a day to talk about Star Wars. The only day of the calendar year that anybody talks about Star Wars. I have on my Star Wars <laughs> shirt. Yes. Because you know what? I used to think for a while I was kind of ambivalent on May the 4th. And then for a while more, I'm like, well, this is a really lame holiday and pointless. But I might as well just lean into it. Yeah. Why not? I got enough Star Wars I wish I'd thought to put on my Star Wars yeah. shirt. I don't have a Star Wars shirt on, but I'm drinking out of a Star Wars glass. Hey, there we go. Um... So we'll 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 t- we'll talk about this a little bit. I know like a great debate to be had. There's so many classic characters in the Star Wars uni- universe, you know, between heroic characters and evil characters, you know, all more fascinating than the last. But I think part of the the real magic of Star Wars to me is just the really pointless, bizarre 
side characters that you will see pop up now and then. That has been a consistent trait of all three iterations of uh, uh, the main storyline as well as the side <laughs> stories. So I kind of wanted to go around the horn and see what what are your favorite random Star Wars side characters? So for me, and Alex, you might have an idea where I'm going here because this is a guy that I feel is a kindred spirit to me. He occurs, uh, he pops up only in, I think, the first, the original movie, Star Wars A New Hope, I think is the only one he appears in. But that is Luke Skywalker's uh, squadron mate, my boy, Porkins. Yes. <laughs> Porkins is pretty great. The, the, bi- the big fat guy who was uh, flying, the, flying the X-Wing fighters. I'm, I've looked into him a little bit, and some of the extended universe media has actually, like, they've done some comic books focused around Porkins. They've actually given him, like, a little bit of backstory. Yeah. Which is good, because originally it was just, he's a joke. Yeah. Like, his name is yeah. Porkins, he's fat, he's we stick fat him guy. in a cockpit. That's, 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 the extent, that's the extent of this bit. One of the many reasons why the first movie shouldn't have been like popular and as good as it was, there's a side character, and an entire point of it is that he's fat, and his name is Porkins. Yeah, his name's Jack Porkins, he's a big fat guy, he looks funny in a cockpit, he says, I'm having a little trouble here, and then he crashes and dies, and that's Porkins. Cover me, Porkins. Yeah, he looks... Ah, dang. If you're having trouble conjuring up what he looks like, <laughs> uh, think any any guy in the '90s SNL Chicago guys sketches. Yeah. He's he's the guy who's waiting in line deciding what to order at McDonald's. Like he he he's not sure yet because he's got so many options. He's that guy. I had a similar explanation, which is that he just looks like a guy from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> That's who Porkins. He's is. very mid. He's very midwestern yeah. for living in deep space. Yeah. <laughs> What about you, Jack John? For me, I'm going to go prequels. Um, my favorite as a kid was definitely Darth Maul, but I'm going to go, I think my first true love uh, was Watto, uh, the the uh, <laughs> junk-dealing, human-trafficking, uh, fly Watto. monster. I was, I was really hoping someone would mention Watto, yeah. He's, he's, yes! so, he's so perfectly bad in all of the prequel ways that just make yeah. him the fucking perfect character. I used to get him mixed up with another pretty great stupid side character, which is Sebulba. Really, yeah, any, yeah. really, Watto and any of the the random pod <laughs> racer characters are just so yeah. unhinged. You know, in hindsight, everybody shit on pod racing is like one of the biggest things wrong with the Phantom Menace. That is honestly one of the most watchable scenes in that movie. There's yeah. that and the big lightsaber lightsaber duel at the end with Qui Gon, Obi Wan, and Darth Maul. Yes. And pod racing, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like, the rest of that movie yeah. kind of sucks. Legitimately, like, pod racing was dope. It just happened to be a movie that was made, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, and all of those movies suck. So it's just a product of its time. But shout out to pod racing. I remember our our grandmother took us to see uh, The Phantom Menace. Like, that was, when we were growing up, our grandma would like to uh, take us to a movie, um, like, on random weekends and... Uh, so we went with our grandma and saw the Phantom Menace. And I remember her complaint at the end was it was loud and it gave her a headache. I think it would be really funny if it turned out like that that was just her cover. And really, she just cared very deeply about the integrity of the lore of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> like she was like, like, you know, like someday when she passes away, like we find out like she had just had this closet just full of memorabilia. <laughs> A stack of angry letters to George Lucas dated after 1999. It's a bunch of journals on where George Lucas was at a certain time, and it goes, failed to hit objective. 
Yeah, our, our, our grandmother tried to mail George Lucas anthrax in 2001. <laughs> so, um, I wish I could add. And there's a, this, uh, next week, stay tuned for our new segment. Cody and Alex try and get their grandma out of Guantanamo Bay. So I wish, I wish I could have one from the, the new series, a random side character, just to kind of, yeah but i don't really i actually there's two from the the original um trilogy that i kind of wanted to mention because i go back and forth actually between which one is my favorite one and this this probably won't surprise anybody who knows me is salacious crumb Um, just the you know he's been a running gag with me and and my good friends back home for a long time i think i mentioned maybe one of my nerdiest anecdotes is that um, when I was playing D and D with those guys, we had a period where we did a like a homebrew Star Wars D and D, and it was so just chaotic and disastrous. It didn't last long, but like it was some of the funniest D and D content we've ever had. Because like I played um, Admiral Akbar's nephew, who was like a pervert, and <laughs> one of our other characters was um, whatever the species that Salacious B Crumb is was him. And he was this little guy who was our medic, and his name was Doctor Yuck. And God, that's I mean, a just... fantastic name, just to begin with. And like none, none of our characters, we weren't aligned good. We were all either evil or <laughs> evil or neutral, is what all of us were. So, um, but my other favorite, and um, you know, again, just a timeless, none other than Max Rebo. You may know him as the yeah. blue, the blue elephant looking guy um who is uh, uh playing the keyboards at java's palace yeah, yeah. he playing the keyboard at uh for the max rebo band um several funny things for one he's just adorable he's like one of the cutest yeah, star he wars really characters is. he's so he just cute. looks like he looks like a cartoon elephant came to life <laughs> it's like a common refrain of um one of the hosts of one of my other favorite podcasts, your Kickstarter sucks. Mike Hale loves to bring up Max Rebo and how adorable he is, but also yep. that that style of music that they were playing. No joke, George Lucas named it Jizz. So not only <laughs> yeah, is there there's a, a whole there's a whole <laughs> thing on I I know I retweeted this, but I found on Twitter an entire discussion of some nerd going into the lore of what Jizz is in the Star Wars universe, and it's fucking hysterical. Yeah. Uh, I, also, I wish I was still in academia so I could write like a dissertation on Jizz. See, if he had if he had done that intentionally after Jizz came to mean what it does, <laughs> that would be great. But yeah. honestly, the fact that he was just like, what would space jazz be called? I know. <laughs> jizz. Jizz. That's just fucking lazy. That's lazy writing. I'm sorry, George, but that, that was lazy. Are you telling me the guy who named the bad guy the German word for father, who was the guy's father, was a lazy writer? No fucking way. I wonder I wonder if, like, in different dubs they have, uh, in different countries they have different, like, if in the French dub his his name is, like, Mr. Dad or something like that. <laughs> I, think, I think it's, like, a translation of one of the European ones. He's literally named Darth Father. Or like Dark Father, I think, or like some shit like that. Like I think it's a literal translation. That's um, just that's fucking that's ridiculous. So yeah, many many 
unhinged, beloved yeah. Star Wars side characters, but uh, those and, are our favorites. While we're talking about uh, music, shout out to the Cantina Band. Absolutely. Playing fucking bangers. Yeah, playing... <laughs> Actually, <laughs> s- slight point of clarification, Jack, for playing the same banger over and over <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and not playing any other song. It, it's a hit. Play that same song! <laughs> And shout out to Seth MacFarlane for writing the best parody that was better than the original. Um. So yeah, I, I'm 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 glad we got that covered. Um, we're gonna get to the guys here shortly, but before we do, actually, I have a, a couple bits of listener feedback. Something that just happened. Just as I looked down at my phone. We got a little bit of live listener feedback. I mentioned Ooh. last week, uh, episode titled "Bag of Shame" was a reference to a story. Uh, I told from a friend of the show, Blake, literally just got a Snapchat from friend of the show, Blake, that I just opened, um, seeing the title and saying, let's fucking go. <laughs> so thank you, Blake, for that. I, I'm, I was wondering when you were going to notice and appreciate that. <laughs> um, the other bit of feedback that I wanted to mention is, as we talk about on every episode, we have a mailbox. It's here's a mailbox at gmail.com. And uh, fans are, are, you know, encouraged to reach out whenever, you know, if they have any feedback, suggestions, comments, and uh, if we like it enough, we'll read it on air. Death and that's, and Well, sure. <laughs> if we like it enough, we'll read it on air. And this is not a death threat, but we that's what we're about to do. <clears throat> we got a uh, first-time email from a friend of the show, Marissa. Um, we know that her and um, previous... Uh, Previous what's contributor, the, what's contributor, yeah. Previous <laughs> contributor, Austin. Um, they listen to the show every week, and Marissa had some feedback for us. I don't remember which episode it was, but one of our recent episodes, we this was twenty seven. If we're talking about the banana thing, yeah, we we talked briefly about bananas, um, and uh, why you know they all just taste the same, and it's like different than the kind of banana we used to have. Um, so Riss emailed us about that. So. Um, Email entitled bananas in um, in uh, parentheses, sadly not in pajamas. Oh, what, a, what an iconic show. Um, from Marissa, just in case you don't actually know why bananas all taste the same, and she linked to an article, which I'm going to mention, uh, we're going to talk about here in a bit. Um, also, can it be baseball week every week? John was an excellent guest host. Death to Jack John. <laughs> Jack, I'm I'm starting to notice kind of a, a, a common theme in a lot of these emails we've been getting. Have you noticed that? I, I love it. That's I I hashtag death to Jack John. Let's see if we can get that trending. Um, that's for our new D and D campaign. That should be our our since we're not running one of uh, since we're not running one of Cassie's games instead yes. of Hail Cassie. It's death to Jack John. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure Pookie would love to just plan to kill me every week. Yes, Jack, I love it. So this article um, that Marissa sent us—I don't know if either of you skimmed it. I, I sent it to you. Um, yeah, it, it. We were aware of, of kind of like the the common internet fact that like bananas used to be different. They used to be more in line of the artificial banana flavor that still hangs around, but that that type of banana vanished. This gives a like more comprehensive story of what happened there. The bananas we have now are all apparently 
descended from like one singular plant from that had been grown in England, um, the Cavendish banana. And yeah. it is smaller and not as tasty as the other yeah. type of banana, which was the Gros Michel. Um, but the Gros Michel uh, got wiped out in the 1950s by uh, a fungus. And so we kind of turned to the Cavendish banana because it is immune to that fungus. So that's kind of neat. But the yeah. bad news, apparently now there is like a super <laughs> fungus developing that might wipe out the Cavendish banana. Then I don't know right. what the fuck we're going to do after that. Yeah. I, I we'll first find learned, some random banana that some guy grew in like Portugal or something. I had first learned about that like on like Vice did a, like like a twenty minute documentary on like how bananas are going extinct and basically like there's just like this dude who's essentially taking like banana sperm and just like trying to like force populate different breeds of banana to like stay resistant to that disease. Uh, so literally, there's just a dude in like a basement, basically just making new bananas and trying to see if one of them sticks. I bet you got great grades in biology growing up, referring to it as banana sperm. <laughs> I'm not calling I, I... the episode that. <laughs> you you Call know banana you want... Oh. Um, that will that will now be three weeks in a row that there's a Cody quote that I like enough to name the episode title that, but in our in our best interest, I probably shouldn't. Um, yeah, I feel like if we I do that a bananas, lot. We'd get a lot more clicks, my and it encompasses two things we've talked about here. Well, to, to go behind the curtain, I just heard my wife from the living room go, "What?" <laughs> Imagine that happens around. You don't here need to know. Start listening to the podcast. <laughs> So my, my favorite anecdote from this article, um, obviously this, this strain of banana plant came from England, but bananas are not grown in England, typically. Um, they're grown like South, South America, Central America, or like the South yeah. Pacific. Um, so, um, yeah, regarding the Cavendish plant, a few years later, the Duke supplied two cases of plants to a missionary named John Williams to take to Samoa. Only one survived the journey, but it launched the banana industry in Samoa and other South Sea Islands. Williams himself was killed by natives. And so that really that really has everything you want right there. It gives us a, a delicious food product and a colonizer got murked at the end of it. Great stuff. <laughs> I'm gonna go I'm gonna go sell this to a bunch of bunch of natives who are probably too dumb to hey, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love I love watching capitalists die. That's I, that's always going to be funny to me. I imagine he had like the banana in his hand, and they have a knife, and he's like, "No, no, you don't need a knife. It peels." And they just continue to take a knife closer to his stomach, and they gut him. Yeah, I really hope when they killed him, they peeled him like a banana. <laughs> Apparently, this is how you're supposed to do it. I don't know. I never knew that. <clears throat> so anyway, thank you very much to friend of the show Marissa for that. Email, very much appreciated. And if any of the rest of you want to get in on the action, send us any uh, comments, feedback, suggestions, threats, heckling, whatever. We like it enough, we'll read it on air. We can't promise that we will, but so far the success rate has been quite good. So um, <laughs> that address again, here's a mailbox at gmail.com. I'm sure we'll mention it at the end of the episode as well. So well, that's all good and fun. That, as you hopefully all know by now, is not why we're here. Folks, we are here to talk about some guys, and uh, we very much enjoyed our experimental concept from the last few weeks where it was uh, two-parters, 
But this week we're going uh, just kind of a classic Here's a Guy episode. The three of us with three guys that I believe the stories will all be completely unrelated to each other or anything else. So to get into it, Jack John, do you want to help me out? Yeah, I, I think I remember. It's uh, The Guys. That was a good one. That's one of your better ones, I think. I found the trick is to be about two beers in. Fantastic. Is Which that, is how you should do most things in life. Is that where you're at right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm on three now. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, he, he actually learned that from uh, Tom Petty. <laughs> that was always his. So, um, I am up first this week, and not to wade into all this, but um, the world kind of really fucking sucks right now, and so... <laughs> mm-hmm. We're just going to have some lighthearted fun with my topic. Um, there will be some allusions to some serious things, but um, this one's a lot of fun. Been looking forward to doing this. Um, I have talked a lot about my love for cartoons um, on this show and on other shows, but I haven't really discussed any cartoon guys yet. That changes tonight! Ooh. Because I am talking about one of the all-time great cartoon guys, the eccentric animator Jay Ward. This is the zaniest guy that I have talked about yet, other than the Wizard of New Zealand, which is not Holy a slight shit. against Jay Ward. It's just, I think the Wizard of New Zealand is levels of zaniness that we are probably never going to match. That's he's high a, praise. I feel like he's a unicorn. Second. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you have to be a certain very specific kind of insane yes. to get there, and it's just not that common. It quite literally is cartoonish levels of zaniness, and I appreciate that a cartoonist is going to come close. So Jay Ward, real name Joseph Ward Cohen Jr., he grew up in Berkeley, California, um, an area of the world that is very good at producing weird people. Um, (laughs) He went to college right there at Cal Berkeley, then went on to get his MBA from Harvard Business School. These facts will be a lot more interesting when you find out what Jay Ward is known for. Oh no! <laughs> to find out that he is, you know, Berkeley and Harvard educated. Can I? Can I take a quick guess? Yeah, it's gonna be hentai. Uh, not quite that fun. Ah, oh, damn. Although I'm sure there is some hentai fic- uh, <laughs> featuring these characters somewhere. I mean, the yeah. rule thirty four is a rule for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to look it up, but I'm sure you're correct. So, um, Jay. As you can kind of tell, he really tried to have the life of a normal, very smart businessman. But the universe, as it sometimes does, clearly had other plans for him. 1947, he opens uh, his real estate office in Berkeley, culmination of all of his hard work and training. Literally, the first day that his office is open, a runaway truck crashes through the building into Jay's office, pinning him against the wall and injuring him. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, I'm not meant for this. <laughs> they said this was a nice. Put your office here. What's the worst that could happen? You said. I mean, can no, you no, imagine? I won't, <laughs> I won't take the runaway truck insurance. That seems pretty far fetched. Like, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> like how hard it is to like open a real estate or really any business, and you get this nice spot right on floor level. And just instantly a truck burst through. I can't fathom. Dude, no wonder this guy's so that weird. That truck, that truck better, the accident better have killed whoever was driving that truck. Because they're going to be dead one way or another. So, although this was tremendously unfortunate for Jay, it wound up being a gift to the world. 
because while he was recovering, Jay discovered his love for animation. Um, animated TV series were still pretty uncommon back then, and like TV in general is fairly new. A lot of like animation, like the early Disney stuff, the early Warner Brothers stuff, it wasn't like regular TV shows. They would just be shorts they'd show in front of movies or independently or whatever. Um, Jay and his friend Alex Anderson, they first get involved in TV in 1950. They presented a pilot featuring several different animated shorts with different characters um, to like one of the OG like TV producer guys, Jerry Fairbanks of NBC. Um, Fairbanks thought all the characters sucked, except for one, a character by the name of Crusader Rabbit. Um, <laughs> Fairbanks greenlighted a series based around Crusader Rabbit, first aired later that year. Um, it ran for two years under uh, Ward and Anderson until 1952, when they lost the rights to the show in a legal battle with a businessman who had bought out Jerry Fairbanks. The show continued <laughs> on, but they had nothing to do with it. That's fucked up. Um, that actually, happens more often than you would think in, in television. People lose their intellectual property through shady shit like that all the time. I actually watched um, the first episode of, of Crusader Rabbit on YouTube. Like Animation was still very primitive at that point. Unless you were like, again, like Warner Brothers or Disney. Um, but you see like a lot of shades of of the kind of style that that ward and anderson's yeah. animation would take on and like it was very zany like in the very first scene of the show crusader rabbit gets run over by a train that's the mark of a good animation uh <laughs> series crusader rabbit's uh reality business gets destroyed yeah. by a train and he's pinned against a wall <laughs> totally zany yeah it turns out all of his animation is just like living out all of his <laughs> past trauma that's the creepy pasta you know, version of jay ward you know, honestly, knowing some of the stuff he would create later, I would say he's had a hell of a life. I wonder if there's a creepy pasta out there of like the lost episode of Crusader Rabbit where he's like skinned alive or something like that. Um, Sounds like an itchy and scratchy cartoon. <laughs> so Ward's style, it's very sarcastic and very satirical. Um, Crusader Rabbit was formatted to be uh, like a serial style and overly melodramatic, which... It was poking fun at that uh, style of TV and radio program, which was big back then. Um, that style, though, would really be perfected in his, uh, Jay's next TV series, the one that he's most known for. Um, he originally um, conceived of as a mock show, like a show within a show set in northern Minnesota called the Frostbite Falls Review. Um, in this original, yeah. In this original conception... Um, the pilot's main character was a character named Oski Bear, which was named and styled after the Cal Berkeley Golden Bears mascot. But more notably, it featured two new minor characters by the name of Rocky the Flying Squirrel and Bullwinkle J. Moose. Goddamn. My favorite anecdote about, um, this original Bullwinkle J. Moose, like, how his character developed when he kind of rethought what the show was going to be was that Bullwinkle was, like, really stupid, the original version of him, he, mm. that wasn't the idea. He was just French-Canadian. <laughs> so, and, and Cody and I especially can laugh, because like, we're from French-Canadian stock, so it's like, the idea that it's such a short leap from being French-Canadian and just being a huge moron is so funny to me. Uh, I, I mean, I love that. a lot of things starting to make sense, yeah. So Ward tinkered with the concept to center it on Rocky and Bullwinkle. 
He adopted the parody serialized style of Crusader Rabbit. It became the Rocky and Bullwinkle show as we now know it, first aired on ABC, then later on NBC. Rocky and Bullwinkle is remembered as one of the best and most popular cartoon series of all time. Probably the thing that's remembered less about it was it was like highly satirical. All of it was like both pop culture yeah, and world events. it was crazy events. funny. Well, like one of the main storylines, the main villains, Boris and Natasha, like the whole thing was poking fun at the Cold War. Um, there were multiple plot lines that there was the the rocket fuel arc they did early on. There was the uh, trying to steal the uh, new element upsidasium, yeah. which is gravity resistant. <laughs> All of that is poking fun at the U.S. and Russia, just shaking their dicks at each other, basically. It, in a lot of ways, it expanded on a lot of what Looney Tunes had pioneered in the cartoon world, between the satire yeah. and like blending both smart and stupid humor. Yeah. Um, and the way that it constantly and shamelessly broke the fourth wall yeah. as well. I was going to say it probably built a lot on the fact that like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck literally like went to war with Hitler in early yeah. like Looney Tunes cartoons. Like, you can find old, like, Looney Tunes cartoons on YouTube where literally Daffy Duck is fighting Nazis. Like, it's, yeah. it's something that cartoons did really well back in the day. Similarly, although it's not a cartoon, um, the Three Stooges did some great anti-Hitler stuff as well. And you appreciate all this even more when you realize that all Three Stooges and all the people animating Looney Tunes were all Jewish. So yes. it was just like an extra <laughs> fuck you on top of right. all that. <laughs> so, yeah, Looney Tunes is doing a lot of this kind of stuff already. Um but Rocky and Bullwinkle turned it up several notches and did it as part of a continuous weekly series. That was something that hadn't really been done. Um, as far as its legacy goes, Rocky and Bullwinkle as a TV series, it, it set the stage for like the Hanna-Barbera series to follow not long after, like the Flintstones and the Jetsons, which heavily influenced like much later cartoon series like, for example, The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy, King of the Hill, etc. Um... So, of course, Rocky and Bullwinkle themselves became timeless characters, um, but it, it had a longer-lasting legacy as well in the way that it set the stage. Um, in addition, the show, it would feature, if you haven't seen it, like, interspersed different, like, miniseries that would be shown in between uh, segments of the Rocky and Bullwinkle scenes, most notably Fractured Fairy Tales, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, and uh, a character who had been previously rejected by Jerry Fairbanks, Dudley Do-Right. Yes. My personal favorite <laughs> segment that Jay Ward has ever done was Dudley Do-Right. It is a parody of uh, 1920s silent films, yes. <laughs> which a lot of people don't get now because that has kind of faded from pop culture. But if you know what they're referencing there, it becomes way funnier. Um. The show's blatant and endless sarcastic mockery of everything and everyone. If you're looking for a modern equivalent, I actually compare it to, like, early South Park, but with a lot more heart to it. Where South Park, like, yeah. they come at it from a little bit different angles, but the, the whole, like, not taking anything seriously approach, yeah. you definitely see that play out a lot later. See, South Park, I, I've grown to have kind of a, a complicated relationship with South Park, because on one hand... Yes, it is genuinely brilliantly funny, and it's excellent satire. The problem is the entire... If you take the show altogether, the thesis statement is the dumbest thing anyone can possibly do is have an opinion. Right. Right. Yeah, their whole yeah. thing is like, look at this idiot. He thinks stuff. Yeah. South Park is at its best when it doesn't take itself seriously and parody, parodies 
like non-opinionated things, like when they did like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, like that's when they're yeah. at their. So sometimes they try and wade into the water a little, like with the accidentally uh, denying climate change. Yeah, <laughs> that that uh, yeah. Sometimes they they take a, a wrong step there. Really, the difference between that and Rocky and Bullwinkle's approach is it's Rocky and Bullwinkle is less like you're. It's less making fun of you for caring. It's more making fun of the thing itself. Um, but still, there's a lot of parallels. Um, but like South Park, it did rub some people the wrong way. I mean, Jay Ward claimed that like, the government of Canada wasn't crazy about his portrayal of Mounties and Dudley Do-Right. And I think, I think he claimed like, the, government of, the government of Mexico wasn't super happy with him. Over, I, I would assume that this is a Peabody and Sherman segment of how they told the story of Pancho Villa. Uh, they weren't <laughs> huge fans of that, which I don't remember that segment. Um, if you were, if you've ever seen Dudley do right, you'll know that the Canadians had a point because the Mounties <laughs> in that show were just the most incompetent bunch of boobs you've yeah. ever seen. They yes. were like the Springfield police in the Simpsons. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a classic. I, I think that yeah. this is, this is going to be one of the biggest animation geeks things you're going to hear from me. I think I heard this on a, Family Guy or American Dad audio commentary. Ooh. One of one of the animators was saying like um like something that he learned somewhere that for cartoons is always funny. There's a few things that are always funny. Um adults acting like children, children acting like adults, and somebody operating in the exact opposite way that you would expect them to. So that sort of subversion of expectations is yeah. what Dudley Do Right was. You expect, yeah. like, Mounties to be, like, he still has, like, the, the, the good-natured thing, but, like, you expect him to be, like, highly competent and good at his job. Instead, yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of a, like, a well-intentioned buffoon, is who Dudley yeah. Do-Right was. In, in academia, they call that incongruity theory. I actually took a class my senior year where they talked about that, and, yeah, it's basically the idea that so much of humor comes from things happening in ways that are different than yeah. you would expect. That that's just the basis of most of humor. To borrow on what you previously said, it's every Simpsons character. It's Doctor Nick. It's Chief Wiggum. It's all of these people acting completely opposite of what you expect them to be. Yeah. Oh yeah. What well, watch watch home it for a perfect example of almost the same situation. Watch Homer at work ever. Yes. Like Lionel. he's a safety inspector at a nuclear power plant, and he is the most useless person <laughs> in the world. R.I.P. Rick Grimes. Yeah. Um, Lionel Hutz, another great example there. Yes, Lionel oh, yeah. That's the other one I was trying to think of, but I couldn't picture his name. So another example of Ward uh, getting in hot water with someone. There was a, um, a classic TV actor from around that time by the name of Durward Kirby. He's a little obscure now. He worked a lot with like Gary Moore and Alan Funt on variety show stuff. He co-hosted the original run of Candid Camera with Funt. Kirby himself was not exactly dumb, but he was like a really big kind of goofy looking guy. And so he was like best <laughs> known for playing big oafish sorts of characters and sketches. Um, Rocky and Bullwinkle had a storyline featuring a spoonerism of his name, the Kerwood, the Kerwood Derby, uh, a magical hat that made everyone stupid if they wore it, but it made Bullwinkle a genius. <laughs> um, Kirby was furious at Ward about this and threatened to sue him. And Ward's response was like, please do. We need the publicity. That attitude yeah. of like not even taking open threats seriously is a concept we will return to in a bit. 
Oh, and see, yeah. here's the thing. Here's the thing about I, I don't know a lot about libel laws or slander or anything like that. You can't get in legal trouble for just publicly calling someone stupid. Yeah, <laughs> that's not yes. a, that's not a thing that you can prove is not yeah. true. So you can't really get sued yeah. for that. I'm not a lawyer, but I imagine the offense is why did you see yourself in this really dumb character? Please tell us. Not my area of law, but I do know enough to know that, yeah, that would not be actionable. Um, so Rocky and Bullwinkle and co. actually weren't the only iconic characters that Ward and Anderson created. Their animation company was uh, hired at one point by the Quaker Oats Company to design cartoon mascots for some of their new breakfast cereals, three of which oh they God. did. Two are less remembered. Um, one is Quake um, for the cereal Quake. He was a big muscle man with a hard hat and a cape and a shirt with a Q on it, which carries a much different connotation today. Yeah. <laughs> a hard hat and a cape? What was his profession? So it went along with, it was a companion serial called uh, Quisp, which we actually know a little bit more about because that's like our yes. dad's all-time favorite serial. Also, will, they like, still make that. You can yeah. still get it some places, and it is genuinely very good. Yeah. He'll occasionally get us a box it's like, of it. It's a lot like it's a lot like original Captain Crunch. And is what it reminds me of. And he uh actually in our my parents got me recently a tank top with the Quisp logo on it, and I don't know where in the <laughs> hell they found something like that. I would have worn it, but it's chilly, so um But yeah, like the ideas with Quake and Quisp was it was like someone from outer space and someone from inner space. I don't know what exact like I haven't seen the commercials. I'm sure they made sense in context, but also, like, it was meant to be goofy. I'm yeah, like, yeah, like, cereal's weird. <clears throat> Warden Anderson's animation style, once you get used to it, you can tell it instantly. Like, very yeah. round features, very dark outlines of things. Unmistakable. Um, which leads me to the third, and by far the most memorable and long-lasting, of Warden Anderson's cartoon mascot creations, a jolly pirate by the name of Captain Crunch. I was gonna guess Captain yeah. Crunch. <laughs> Fuck yeah. He, you know, I never would have guessed that until you said it, but it makes total sense yeah, now. Yeah, and he looks—I could totally see him being drawn like yeah. a Bullwinkle character. Yeah, he he looks a little different now, but if you look at like the original drawings of Captain Crunch, yeah. it's clearly a Warden Anderson character. When you had started going like rounded edges, like sharp lines, I was like, "This sounds like it's going to be Captain Crunch." Yeah, I'm so fucking happy it is. Um, so those things are all the legacies that Jay Ward is most known for. But maybe my favorite Jay Ward story is a bit more obscure. <clears throat> so as noted, Jay Ward was known for being incredibly zany and eccentric. He didn't take things seriously, and that's what made him a great comedic mind. But that also ne nearly got him into uh, a lot of trouble during his most grandiose bit yet. Um, so I'll acknowledge my source for not all of this, but some of this. Um, an article by Steve Huff for InsideHook.com from February of 2018. So there was a Rocky and Bullwinkle storyline that involved uh, a fictional island called Musylvania near the U.S.-Canadian border in Lake of the Woods. And the bit on the show was that Musylvania was so terrible and unpleasant that it had no permanent population and neither U.S. or Canada would claim it. Um, Bullwin <laughs> Bullwinkle acted as uh, Musylvania's governor but could only stand to be there two weeks at a time. <clears throat> it was a pretty popular storyline. And so Jay, being the eccentric mind he is, he decided there's a chance for a publicity stunt here. His idea was to create a real Musylvania and petition for U.S. statehood. 
Oh my god. <laughs> See, the thing is, Lake of the Woods is a real place, and there really are a bunch of inhospitable islands within it. Um, so Jay teams up with a guy named Howard Brandy, um, a legendary TV and movie publicist. At that time, he was best known uh, for his work with another classic TV series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. So they were somehow able to lease ownership of one of these islands in Lake of the Woods for the low, low price of $1,500. Ah, damn it. Clearly a place no one wants to be, which was the point. (laughs) Like, nobody lived there. It wasn't being used for anything. It was just like a dog shit island in the middle of a lake, and that's precisely what they wanted. Um, They then launched a campaign to petition the U.S. government for Musylvania statehood. Ward and Brandy acquired a colorful panel van and toured the country collecting signatures and support. Also important to note, Jay was dressed as Napoleon for the entire uh, duration of this for some reason. <laughs> I love this. Of course he was. Yeah, there's nothing not to love because it's an incredibly fun idea. But here's the problem is this campaign was taking place in the fall of 1962, a time when the U.S. government had a lot bigger things to worry about than Mussolvania. So what's going on during this time? JFK is the president. And he's remembered now as a figure who captivated the public, but in late 1962, his popularity was at a bit of a nadir. Um, The main reason, the Cold War was not going particularly well. In 1959, um, Fidel Castro becomes the leader of Cuba and aligns with the uh, the Soviet Union. Cuba's close proximity to the mainland U.S. made this a particularly troubling development for America in the Cold War. 1961, the year prior, the Bay of Pigs fiasco blew up in John F. Kennedy's face. It was such a shit show that it harmed his credibility. And to make matters worse... Throughout 1962, rumors are abound that the Soviet Union is supplying Cuba with means to construct nuclear weapons. Now, at least, at least Ward didn't do a storyline about the Bay of Moose. Yeah, even though the I joke totally was right there. That. The joke was right there. I could totally see him doing that. Maybe he did. I need to go. I've been thinking this yeah. whole time I'm prepping this. I need to do like a Rocky and Bullwinkle rewatch. We still have a bunch of those DVDs. I did. I yeah. actually did some of the series not long ago. And I could. There, there is no Bay of Pigs series. I can tell you that. I gotcha. <laughs> um, September 21st, 1962. Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromko. Sorry, Andrei Gromiko, Um He testifies before the UN that. This isn't the case, that they aren't supplying weapons to Cuba. This did little to calm the nerves of the U.S. October 1962. Jay Ward and Howard Brandy are galumphing around America, dressed in costume, getting people on board with their big stunt. They're collecting lots of signatures and picking up more and more attention along the way as they go. October 8, 1962. Cuban President Osvaldo Doticos speaks before the U.N., and drop some hints, they may be more well-armed than uh, before, although the Soviets continue to deny their involvement. Um, Wanting to know more, obviously, the U.S. starts planning a spy operation to figure out the truth once and for all. October 10th, the Mussolvania campaign gains its first major press. An article in the Amarillo Globe Times informed the public of their statehood goal and quoted Ward as declaring that uh, Mussolvania's non-existent residents would stand for this injustice no longer. <laughs> I fucking love Absolute him. zaniness. He's great. 
He's so wacky. October 14th. Air Force General Major Major Richard Heiser flies a U-2 spy plane over western Cuba and sees below that a Cuban base is quite obviously at work constructing a nuclear missile. Um, This set into motion what we now know as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. Kennedy and his advisors agreed that they wouldn't tolerate the presence of nuclear missiles in Cuba, but the question was, how do they deal with this issue in a way that wouldn't cause a full-scale catastrophe? All options are on the table, including, if push came to shove, a bombing campaign or the invasion of Cuba, actions that they knew could trigger a nuclear response from the Soviets. So Kennedy decides, at least at first, he's going to try a more level-headed approach. A combination of a blockade of Cuba and issue an ultimatum to the Soviets to take your equipment uh, back home at once. If you don't, we'll send you to live in Mussolvania. October 20th. The Associated Press publishes an article entitled Wacky Stunter, Now At It Again. This would have been a very funny framing of Kennedy's response to the nuclear threat, but it was actually about Jay Ward. <laughs> In the article, Ward joked that Canada had twice refused Mussolvania as a gift, even with Lake Superior thrown in. October 22nd. Kennedy appears on TV and addresses the nation. He explains that the presence of missiles in Cuba has been confirmed and that he had enacted a blockade in response, but that they were prepared for military action if the Soviets didn't stand down. This began one of the most terrifying weeks in American history, as the public grasped that the possibility of nuclear war was closer to reality now than ever before. October 24th. A critical moment in the crisis when when Soviet ships approached the U.S. blockade. Had they attempted to breach the blockade, it may have exploded into full-scale nuclear war. Thankfully, they don't. They back off. But this relief was only slight because the Soviets still did not acquiesce to the Americans' demands. This, uh, while it was a good thing, obviously, that um, this wasn't it, it showed Americans just how close we were to the breaking point. In the background, all leaders allied with each other are agreeing that we are very, very close to having to take the nuclear option. Meanwhile, all week, Jay Ward is making TV appearances, hyping up the Mussolvania campaign. Oh my god. (laughs) Cracking such jokes as, many people call this a publicity stunt. That's not true. It's a keen tax dodge. And my my favorite, in Mussolvania, we have a two-party system. One starts at 5 p.m. and the other at 8 p.m. Oh my god. God, I I love him so much. Such a classic. He's just shitposting on daytime TV while the Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis is happening. I fucking love this. Ward's making all these media appearances, and clearly he's gearing up for whatever the big payoff of this bit is supposed to be. <laughs> October 27th rolls around, a day that would come to be known as Black Saturday. Khrushchev contacts Kennedy with a new offer. They'll withdraw the nukes from Cuba if the U.S. withdraws their missiles they'd set up in Italy and Turkey. Kennedy himself admitted that this was a smart move on Khrushchev's part. So the reality was those those missiles weren't really active, so functionally they weren't that important. So when the public got wind of this offer, you know, by now the American public is reasonably terrified of the possibility of full-scale nuclear annihilation. They'd consider that a no-brainer offer to accept. But Kennedy had other considerations, though. One, he was likely concerned about the precedent for this kind of compromise, Two, concerned about undermining NATO authority since they weren't behind this. Three, damaging alliances with Turkey and Italy who wanted the missiles there. 
And four, the consideration of, are the Soviets even going to abide by this agreement? So every government in the world knew this is the tipping point and that the ball's in JFK's court to act now. They're sitting there that day, their fingers are all hovered over the buttons while Kennedy met with his advisors to weigh his options. This was the closest that the world has ever been that we know of to a full-scale nuclear war. While this is going on behind, the, uh, behind closed doors, on October 27th, a particular colorful van that had been in the news recently rolls up in front of the White House. Oh, no. Who pops out? But none other than the fearless leader of Mussolini himself, Jay Ward. Scroll of signatures in hand, still in full Napoleon costume, Ward <laughs> starts waltzing up the path to enter the White House. What Ward was apparently banking so, on... Go ahead. This is the one time in Jay Ward's life that his comic timing was totally <laughs> wrong. Or too good, Normally depending on how you look at it. Normally he was very good at that. <laughs> it was either... Well, yeah, it depends on your threshold for wackiness, I guess. It was either as good or as bad as it could possibly be. <laughs> So what Ward was apparently banking on was that Kennedy was like the cool president and he'd have a sense of humor about the whole Mussolini stuff. Yeah. <laughs> At other times that might have been true, but Ward was apparently not watching the news recently. I was going to say, like, it, normally if you bring that option to Jack Kennedy, yeah. he'd be like, great, can I fuck it? Yeah, all right. He's, then we're yeah. good. He's too busy with fucking daytime puff pieces. He hasn't noticed the actual nighttime news that goes, we're going to die soon. And he's like, everything's still fucking cool, man. Yeah, had Ward not had Ward been watching the news and was aware of what was going on, he probably could have seen coming what was about to happen. <clears throat> he strolls up the path and he's met by fifteen or so very confused armed guards. They're like, uh, "What do you think you're doing?" He says, "I have a petition for statehood for Mussolvania," and they're like, uh, "Yeah, you got about thirty seconds to get the fuck out of here." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ward claims, you can't do that. I have diplomatic immunity. He tries pleading no. He tries pleading his case that the president would love to see them, and he'll think it's really funny. Meanwhile, Howard Brainy is just in the van just the whole time just shitting himself in fear. <laughs> um, what finally gets the point across to Jay Ward that they weren't getting into the White House was when the lead guard... Um, ran out of patience, unsnap his holster, and reach for his pistol to blow Jay Ward's head off. Oh my god. <laughs> Ward retreat. Again, armed guards at the White House can do whatever they want to you. Like, I, there is almost no no situation where they're going to get in trouble for it. If, if that lead guard didn't go, you've got 500 signatures, I've got 500 bullets, then he wasted his entire career. Am I... This whole thing reminds me very much of something Norm MacDonald would have done. Yeah. <laughs> so Ward, uh, recognizing that he is split seconds away from getting shot, he retreats to the van, they speed off, Ward supposedly griping the whole ride home about how rude that guy was. So <laughs> the guy with the gun to my head was very, very unnice to me. So the conclusion of all this for everybody, um, the short version as far as the missile crisis goes... Later that evening, de they do de-escalate. Um, the compromise they reach is that Kennedy does accept uh, the Soviets' offer, but with an addendum. He would, in secret, remove the missiles from Italy and Turkey. Um, meanwhile, he would tell his people that uh, the Soviets backed down because of their threat to invade Cuba. 
Ultimately, the two men, Kennedy and Khrushchev, came to their senses. They both had their political and strategic reasons for doing so. But probably the biggest reason is that there was one key thing that the two of them agreed on. They knew that a full-scale nuclear war would kill, at best, a third of the, of the world population. And who knows what effects it would have down the road. Yeah. And they both felt that, like, we really don't want that to happen. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this, this really is not worth killing everybody on Earth yeah. over. And so cooler heads prevailed. Um, the Cold War obviously would go on for quite some time after that. Um, but that ended perhaps the most terrifying time in America um, just to be in America. <laughs> as far as how Mussolini went, um, apparently they continued the campaign for a while, but it never really regained its steam. They never got to meet with Kennedy about it. The final <laughs> resolution of the Mussolini story in the series finale of Rocky and Bullwinkle um, when faced with invasion and possible annihilation by Boris and Natasha and fearless leader, Mussolini is saved when Rocky and Bullwinkle realize they can blow a, uh, a gum bubble big enough to just make the island float away. <laughs> and I wonder, I assume that this slightly parodies real events. Um, <laughs> but in any event, Mussolini gets its own happy ending. Um, Jay Ward lived a long life after that. Um, as one of the most accomplished animators of all time. And uh, one of the most fun zany guys with some of the most interesting timing of all time as well. So that's the story of Jay Ward. And um, my big question to the two of you, it's actually going to be a, a two-parter, because I think the first part is going to be pretty easy, and I think I know both of your answers. First, would you have signed the petition for Mussolini statehood? Fuck yeah. Oh, Absolutely. And uh, my other question, um, at what point in all this would the two of you have given up? <laughs> like, would you have gone well, as far as Ward did, or would you have gone even further? It depends on um, whether or not I was cognizant of the news, because if I knew that th this they were negotiating the, you know, how this missile crisis is going to turn out, I probably wouldn't have shown up on that day. <laughs> So if I were Ward, I don't think I would have backed down. I think I would have just put it on the back burner until the minute they get that sorted out, and then I'm going straight back to the White House. I'm going to no. try and get an audience with Jack Kennedy. No, no, no. Mussolini lives with volatile consequences. I am a martyr for the cause. I am <laughs> dying on the White, steps fucking, White House's fucking steps to catapult Mussolvania into statehood. I am dying for the fucking cause right there. <laughs> it, it's not like... <laughs> I mean, can can you imagine if the world ended because this goofball actually got into the White House and caused such a distraction that Kennedy couldn't respond well, yeah, in time? If Kennedy, if Kennedy had called Khrushchev and been like, sorry, I can't talk about this now, this insane cartoon guy is trying to invent a fake state. Khrushchev's going to be like, no, that can't be true. You're just trying to dodge this. JFK is on the line. He's like, look, I'd love to talk to you, but this moose fucker's in my office right now, and he's not leaving. The fucking Bullwinkle guy's been here all day. I can't get rid of him. JFK goes, and now for something you'll really enjoy, and hangs up. <laughs> I just imagine Ward grabbing the uh, the phone away from Kennedy, being like, tell Boris and, Boris and Natasha to back off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing a scene where he gets in 
And Kenny's like, okay, maybe I can use this to kind of de-escalate tensions. He gets Khrushchev on the phone. He says, okay, sorry, I've, I've been a little distracted. I just, I need a little more. To, like, this this cartoon guy showed up, and he's got this weird petition. Khrushchev's like, oh, I love cartoons. Who is it? He's like, uh, you know, he's a guy who does uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Khrushchev goes, um, oh, that's the show that has uh, uh, Boris Badenov, <laughs> right? You know, the, the Russian characters? Kennedy goes, <laughs> yeah. And you just hear the phone click on the other end. <laughs> so it's not completely out of the question that Jay Ward was, he got fairly close to accidentally causing nuclear annihilation. I would, I would love that. I mean, I'd be dead and not existed at all yeah. for the fact of the matter, but I would have loved if the world ended on a shit post. I, I, I love that the world almost got yes. blown up because of something that dumb. Right. If it, if it actually had gotten blown up, I'd be significantly if, more pissed off. But. If any of the three of us were ever in power at a major scale, it, that's how the world's going to end. It's by some dumbass cartoon. I imagine the mass suicides that would happen after we got elected to whatever would probably take away most of the potential damage. <laughs> All right. With the nuked the United States, uh, only 35 people died because most of them killed themselves already. <laughs> All right, so that's the story of Jay Ward. What a fun, wacky adventure that was. And so for our next topic, we turn to Cody. Cody, who's your guy this week? My guy is uh, not a guy at all. It's a gal this week. Uh, we're talking about Gloria Ramirez. And this story is nowhere near as fun but depending on your definition of wacky, maybe it qualifies. I don't know. Depends on your sense of humor, I guess. And I'll, I'll just say that for those of you like the three of us who spend way too much time on the internet, this is like a classic like internet story that goes around. People who don't like probably haven't heard of this, but um, like for people who spend time like just looking up weird stuff on like Reddit and Crack.com. This is like one of the the gateway stories into that world, and one of the best ones too. So I'm very excited to to hear your your telling of this story. So Gloria Ramirez is one of those occasional subjects that we stumble on on this show, whose impact on culture really only starts after they're dead. Yeah, we talked about Pope Formosus. You know, this is a similar kind of thing. Uh, Gloria Ramirez uh, was a woman from Riverside, California. She was born in 1963. Um, she is known by those familiar with the story occasionally as the toxic lady. And Gloria Ramirez, uh, really her luck was not great to begin with. Uh, she caught cervical cancer very, very young. Um, and she was one of these people who treated it like... I'm not going to say purely holistically, but she tended to go for the more quote unquote natural remedies as opposed to like going to the hospital and getting her cancer treated. That is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. What I've noticed is that that tends to like, you know, not work ever. Yeah. Generally, well, uh, you this, can't cure, this case is no exception. You can't kill, uh, can't cure cancer with crystals as it turns out. You know that uh that I that iPhone that you may be listening to the show on. You know why that guy's <laughs> not around anymore because of that exact shit. 
He tried to like just eat a bunch of like, like I don't know, fucking. What did he do? Did he eat a bunch of just like pears or something? I don't know. He seems like the kind of guy that thought blueberries cured cancer. And blueberries are delicious, but they do not cure cancer. They are antioxidants, though. Yeah, they could help you for. They could stop you from getting cancer. They can stop you from Um, oxidizing. Well, that would have been helpful in this case, maybe, uh, as we'll talk about later on. Um, Gloria Ramirez was, uh, she showed up at the hospital, hospital emergency room, uh, suffering for the, uh, from the effects of late stage cervical cancer. Um, she goes in for treatment and let's just kind of go through a timeline of what happened here. Okay. So at eight fifteen on the evening of February 19th, 1994, again, Part of the tragedy of this is she was just 31. Um, very, very young, obviously. Uh, she came in suffering from severe heart palpitations. Uh, she went into the ER in Riverside General Hospital in Riverside, California. Uh, by ambulance, she was extremely confused, uh, was suffering from tachycardia, which is, again, a very fast heartbeat. And also what's called Shane Stokes respiration, which is what like people with sleep apnea have where you breathe more progressively deeply. And then at the end of the cycle, you just stop breathing. But that's not supposed to happen if you don't have sleep apnea. And it really is not supposed to happen when you're not asleep. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the medical staff, just to try and slow down her heart, um, just doped the fuck out of her with sedatives. They gave her Valium they gave her Ativan and they gave her uh, what's called Versed, which is another kind of similar narcotic, just basically to try and slow her heart down. I mean, medically speaking, I think technically that works. But practically, it I does have questions. In, it does in certain cases. Um, yeah, if, if they think that that, that will, will look take care of the problem they will frequently do that look if your bpm is five it's slower now it's cool (laughs) yeah well (laughs) the thing is though this didn't fucking work oh no her heart was still going a million miles an hour um she was responding poorly to treatment they tried to defibrillate her um there just there was there was no point uh the cancer had just strangled her organs basically Um, the staff initially tried to defibrillate her, and it's at this point where somebody first starts noticing, hey, something's weird here. They saw an oily sheen covering her body, not like normal sweat, but like a greasy, oily just coating on her skin. Um, some people noticed an odor that they... I, I cannot possibly imagine this. Maybe you can, but they described it as a fruity and yet garlic-like odor that they thought maybe was coming from her mouth, but there was just that smell hanging around her body. I don't know exactly. Like, I'm trying to conjure something in my mind that would smell like that, but I just, I got nothing. Yeah, I don't know. So they, yeah, I know, that's fucking weird. Anything that I can think of doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh they have uh, somebody, one of these registered nurses, uh, her name was Susan Kane. She drew some blood from Ramirez's arm while they were in the process and noticed a weird ammonia-like smell coming from the tube. She passed the tube to Julie Gorchinski, who was a medical resident, 
She noticed the smell, and also there were manila-colored particles floating in the blood. You're not supposed to have particles of anything in your blood. No, let alone manila-colored. Yeah, there's two red flags there, and they shouldn't absolutely never go together. There, There should never be anything visible that's not blood in your blood. Correct. That's a pretty good rule of Whatever's thumb, yes. in there, you yeah. shouldn't be able to see it. Um, so, at this point, uh, Susan Kane starts feeling a little lightheaded. And at first she just thinks it's because of all the ex- excitement and the odd smells in the place. But eventually she just passes out. I mean, she just falls flat on her face, unconscious. And she has to be, like, removed at- from the room. A few minutes later, Julie Korczynski, who was the one who noticed the manila-colored particles, starts getting lightheaded and feels like she's going to puke. So she leaves the trauma room and sits at a uh, nurse's desk. A staff member comes up and says, are you okay? And instead of responding, what she did was to also slump forward and fall down unconscious. This was not the end. Of people hitting the floor. Oh boy. Maureen Welch, a respiratory therapist who was trying to help uh, Miss Ramirez with her breathing, uh, was assisting in the trauma room. She goes down next, just passes out. They have no fucking clue what's going on. And remember, here's the thing that's really scary about this this is happening in a room full of medical professionals, and they don't know what's going on. None of them have ever seen anything like this before. <laughs> Yeah, depending on the era that this happens, they just assume she's a demon and kills her. 1994. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, it's still possible depending on which state you're in. Well, this was California. Yeah, if this was right. Georgia, I... I was going to say, the, the southeast, she's getting killed immediately. Oh, yeah. Um, So eventually, they, they just they have no clue what's going on. Um, The staff was ordered to evacuate the emergency department uh, patients and take them out to the parking lot outside the hospital. Uh, a skeleton crew stayed behind to stabilize her. I don't know how, because overall, 23 people became ill, with five of them being ill to the point of being hospitalized. Christ. No idea what the hell's going on. Uh, after 45 minutes of trying to stabilize her with CPR and defibrillation, Ramirez was pronounced dead. Um, the technical cause was kidney failure because of the cervical cancer. So that's where Ramirez's story ends. But that leaves a sizable question of what the fuck is going on with this body. Yeah. Yeah. All these, you know, everyone just hitting the floor. It's a, a rare, yeah. a rare ailment known as drowning pooleitis. <laughs> oh, I fucking hate you for that. Oh, I almost made that joke earlier. I'm so glad I didn't. I'll let you take the heat for that one. Um, so they launch an investigation uh, officially with the Department of Health and Human Services. They send uh, two scientists, uh, Dr. Ana Maria Osoria and Dr. Kirsten Waller. They interviewed 34 different hospital staff who had been working in the department on the night in question. Uh, they built this kind of standardized questionnaire that they could just apply to everybody who was there. Um, they found that the people who had developed severe symptoms, such as passing out, shortness of breath, muscle spasms, 
tended to have certain things in common. For one thing, they all tended to have worked much more closely to Sarah Ramirez. Um, notably, the ones who were within two feet of her and had handled those uh, IV lines. Yeah. They tended to be the ones who like passed out and had serious problems later on. If you touched bodily fluids, you probably had some shit happen to you. Um, but there were some other kind of weird anomalies, too. They found that um, it tended to afflict women more than men. Um, they also found that most of their blood tests popped negative. Uh, they couldn't. They took blood from all these people, and they couldn't find anything amiss. Um, so initially, it was their idea that they suffered from mass hysteria. So for those of you unfamiliar with the concept of mass hysteria, it is a shared delusion uh, among a group of people in which they all get so worked up that they can't really tell re uh, reality from non-reality anymore and basically just have a big group panic attack and that can right. cause them to do really odd things. Like you see one person go down and you're like, oh, fuck, what's going to happen to me next? And then that just dominoes horribly. Yeah. So like... A case of mass hysteria would be, um, you know, what's a good example here? Like, if you get stuck in an elevator with three other people, and one of the people in the elevator is very excitable, and he immediately gets all paranoid and thinks, oh my god, the building's on fire, we're all gonna die. And then one of the other passengers is a little suggestible, and even though they should know that that's probably not true. Their anxiety gets the better of them. And the more dominoes fall, the more other people start to fall in line with it. Right. Um, there have been some documented cases. If you want some fascinating reading, look up documented mm -hmm. cases of mass hysteria Absolutely. throughout world history. It is wacky. People do some really, really odd shit when they are under these kind of group delusions. But it's it's They're just another weird little part of our human psychology. I'll, I'll cite another few examples um, as instances where it's been suggested that might be what's going on. Another classic like internet spooky true story, the Diet Law Pass incident, that's been suggested as a possible explanation yeah. for what happened there. Maybe not one of the likelier ones. Um, Havana Syndrome, it's been suggested that mm -hmm. that might be what's going on there. That's probably one of the better examples. Havana Syndrome, that is almost certainly <clears throat> mass hysteria. Yeah, it, it's that or something else fake. I mean, we, we it's not true, but yeah. mass hysteria is as yeah, good it's, it's, it's either mass hysteria or everyone's just lying. Yeah, but um, there is also the story, uh, a story we may talk about at some point if we can find a way to shoehorn it in of in the Middle Ages. Uh, there were several reports of like towns full of people just dancing wildly until they dropped. Yeah, yeah. yes. Completely. That was completely a weirdo fucking story. thing. And although that uh, they actually think might have been uh, from some of the fungus that grew on some of the food yeah. they were eating and preserved poorly that, you know, like some funguses are like psilocybin. They have psychoactive effects. Maybe all these people were just tripping balls. Yeah. Um, it, it's either a town full of people with syphilis or it's hysteria. It's one of the two. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other Pandora's box. Like the theories as to how much like the ergot fungus may have contributed to a lot of strange things mm -hmm. in human history and a lot of weird beliefs. I was going to just, yeah, as that far... kind of that along with the lead and the gasoline in America <laughs> is those are two really fun rabbit holes to go down. Yeah. Considering like how unintentionally insane everybody might have been like forever. I, uh -huh. I was, I was going to posit one other 
phenomenon that I've seen suggested could be mass hysteria, how like cops in certain police departments or like certain regions claim that they'll have like severe episodes after coming into close contact with fentanyl, despite the fact that like, A, that's not how fentanyl yes. works and B, like I've not, where I work, I've not yeah. ever heard of that problem. And like officers handle fentanyl all the time yeah. because like that's, again, it's not going to like, kill yeah. you or make you high just by coming in close contact with it. But it's been yeah. suggested I mean, that that could be like a form of mass hysteria causing right. panic attacks there, and they don't realize that's was, what it is. There was a John Oliver bit about that recently. It's just they, mm-hmm. they get worked up so much about it that they give themselves panic attacks and yeah. then they pass See, out and then they claim it's That's one all. possible... I still think it's considerably more likely that the cops are just making this shit up so they have an excuse to crack down harder. Also, also just that. because that's what cops do. <laughs> Or they could. Um, or they could also just work hand in hand. Those two. Those two concepts. Yeah. Those impressionable yeah. little scams. I'm telling yeah. you. But you know, mass hysteria was the initial designation here. But the people who came in contact with it, they disagree with this vehemently. Again, these are medical professionals. They understand yeah. what psychological symptoms are and what they can do to you. Yeah. But uh, for instance, Melanie Gorchinsky, um, she specifically uh, was very vehement that she had not been affected by mass hysteria and pointed to her own medical history as evidence. After the exposure, she, uh, she spent two weeks in the ICU with breathing problems. She also developed hepatitis and avascular necrosis in her knees. Jesus. Those are not, those are not uh, <laughs> symptoms of mass hysteria. Typically. No, developing hepatitis is a pretty difficult thing to, to have happen to you, frankly. Yeah. So they did finally come to something of a conclusion. This is the working. There are still some questions that remain unanswered about this, but <coughs> this is what they're the, the working theory is. And for the most part, it works. Um, they sent this out to what's called the uh, Lawrence Liverpool national lab uh, laboratory to investigate the incident. It's uh, located in Berkeley and Livermore labs, uh, came to the conclusion that Ramirez had been using a home remedy to treat her cancer pain called dimethyl sulfoxide. Uh, what dimethyl sulfoxide is, uh, it's known mostly by the name DMSO, which is how I'm going to say it from here on out, because those are tough words to pronounce. Um, but it's a solvent. Uh, it's used as a powerful degreaser. Uh, people that... Uh, have used this substance report that it has kind of a garlic like flavor. It's sold in gel form at hardware stores. Um, but it's also been a like home remedy for joint pain for a while. Um, it's, it's again, one of those kind of like holistic remedies that doesn't actually work. Um, the Livermore scientists theorized that the DMSO in her bloodstream, uh, built up because of the kidney failure because she had urinary blockages and uh, caused by the kidney failure that allowed all of that chemical to keep building up in her body. Um, Oxygen administered by the paramedics would have combined with this chemical to form what's known as dimethyl sulfone or DMSO2, uh, which crystallizes at room temperature. And they did see some crystals in the blood, uh, the manila covered particles. Um, they also administered defibrillation with electric shocks, which could have converted that into dimethyl sulfate, which is incredibly toxic. It is a dimethyl ester of uh, sulfuric acid. 
Oh, jeez. And the ex- exposure to that in gaseous form could have definitely caused a lot of the symptoms that were reported. My um, God. They also changed, uh, they talked about the change in temperature from Ramirez's body, which is 98.6, to the uh, room temperature, which is about 64 degrees, might have contributed into the conversion. That's just a theory, though. They don't know that for sure. This is as close as we have come to ever being able to explain this. Um, that is, again, the working theory, but we don't know for sure. That's the only thing anyone's ever been able to come up with. They eventually released her, her body two months after she died. Uh, at this point, she was badly decomposed. They released it for an independent autopsy and burial. Um, the family pathologist was unable to determine a cause of death because a bunch of her organs were missing. Um, after the first (laughs) autopsy had been done. So uh, there was a lot of cross-contamination, a lot of decomposition. Just basically, they didn't have much to work with. Yeah. Um, Eventually, they just said, fuck it. Let's let's just bury her. We're still not sure what this is, but let's just bury. Um, Yeah, the the situation I described earlier with the using of uh, dimethyl sulfoxide is still the official story as far as we're concerned. Beyond this theory, absolutely no credible explanation has ever been offered. It was just so damn weird. Um, There are also uh, a story by the L.A. Times, or pardon me, it's New Times L.A., was that Gloria Ramirez could have been, uh, as this was a problem in the area, she could have been into manufacturing meth, which could have exposed her to some other chemicals that could have built up into her bloodstream and done something similar. So that's also possible. Um, Like, some of the precursors to meth are things like Alex. We are familiar with anhydrous ammonia, yep. which is extremely toxic. Um, but farmers put it on their fields for some of the effects it has there. Right. But that's I mean, that's it. That is the <laughs> end of the official explanation. Well, I, I it's saw, just so fucking weird. I, what happened? So, Cody, you, you mentioned that like um, it's one of the things that goes into meth, meth. And then you said, Alex and I were familiar with it. And Jack John's face, like he just put a finger up like. Yeah. And then I, I you explain question. like yeah. It's it's because we grew up in farm country. Now granted yeah. the the like growing up in farm country and also like being around places where meth is manufactured, those two things do go hand in hand, but like that is why that is why we know what what anhydrous ammonia is, because it's you, just kind of yeah. all over the place when you, you grow up where you Well and it. also there were I remember hearing a bunch of times when I was a kid about how people were stealing anhydrous to make meth with. Yeah. So you would said it as such like a matter of fact. You're like Alex. You and I are familiar with meth, right? This is how it works. <laughs> like you would said it is so nonchalantly. <laughs> we are from Methville. Okay, we're all that from is... the Midwest. We're all from Methville. Exactly. Yeah. They uh the the so... field the fields where we're from they actually dust the crops with meth. It doesn't it doesn't kill the bugs, but it just makes them all like rob <laughs> and kill each other. <laughs> It's, we're I was going to say, the, the bugs start scheming and have better yeah. things to do after they, they get a hold of that. When the world gets their super bugs, it's actually Midwest regular bugs on meth. It's like, you know, I'd love to eat this plant, but I got a, I got a shed I really want to burglarize. <laughs> Look, I need to take all of the car parts from my uh, my neighbor's car. I'm going to go cut off this, uh, this piece here and sell it for scrap. Look, if this plant doesn't have any <laughs> copper piping I can strip, I'm just not interested. <laughs> I was going to eat this corn, but uh, now I've got to take my couch apart and put it back together a bunch of times. <laughs> um, so my big question to the two of you, um, 
if you were if you were to be the next quote unquote toxic lady, if you were gonna booby trap your corpse somehow, how do you want to do it? I'm going real old school zany with this because I'm still thinking about Jay Ward. I'm um, I'm putting a, a, a jack in the box and planting it in my stomach facing outward. So as soon as they <laughs> cut me out, it's just going to pop. It's actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to It's the scene from Alien. Well, I'm actually, yeah, I'm going to alter it. I'm going to make it look like the little creature from Alien. Yes. Ironically, that is also what kills me. <laughs> <laughs> you were alive on the table until that point. Like, yeah, I was I was a perfectly healthy, nearly thirty year old man, and still I, until I decided to do this bit and implant the uh, the little <laughs> thing from Alien in my stomach just for a laugh. I I'm gonna go lowbrow but highbrow. I think I'm uh, I'm gonna put mustard gas in my ass, and I'm gonna have a booty booty trap. <laughs> booty booty trap. <laughs> And uh, during the autopsy, uh, I'm gonna gas the room. So yeah. is it just so is it just like a grenade where it's yeah. as long as it's held <laughs> it's, in your ass, it holds the pin in. But as soon as they open your stomach, it's the scene from Archer. There's a grenade in my ass. Yes, <laughs> Jack. So we've referenced you so, and I. You and I almost uh, uh, roomed together for a semester in college. And, yes. Uh, had that happened, I suspect I would have gotten that treatment a time or two. Yes, uh, I I have really bad farts. Uh, my wife can attest to that. So you absolutely would have gotten my mustard gas ass. And that was when you were eating so, like a lot worse than you are now, too. So. I was eating a lot more just like straight up Taco Bell and fried food. I'm eating that, too, but I balance it out with other shit. Right. So for me, I had kind of a similar idea to Alex. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have clutched in my hand a but loosely held a bottle of seltzer. And then when rigor mortis sets in to the point where my hands clench, it's going to spray whoever's autopsying me right in the face. You That's fucking a good clown. That's a good bit. I hope you, you know, replace your nose with a fucking horn as well at the same point. Just go full clown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd have to do that before I died, which I could also have some fun with, I guess, if I like knew I was dying in a week. You it's just like, blow your nose. It's like the family guy. <laughs> Yes. I know why this clown died. His lungs are filled with candy! <laughs> <clears throat> Good answers. I like those. Alright, well, a great segment, and um, I'm going to issue a, a PSA to everybody. I don't want to uh, I don't want to be harsh on people who have found out they have a cancer diagnosis. I can't imagine how crushing that is um, and how scary of an experience it is. But please... Please just trust a doctor instead of drinking a bunch of crap from under your sink because this is the kind of thing that yeah. happens. That's my look, PSA. Look to real science. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Cody. Uh, that was a, a fascinating tale. Um, one of the more mysterious ones we've talked about on this show, I think. So, um, two good topics to start off, if I do say so. And for our third, and what I'm sure will be a fantastic topic from the little preview he's given us, we turn to Jack John. Jack John, who's your guy this week? Before I tell you officially who my guy is, I do want to tell a little bit of a story, almost a little prelude. Ooh, I uh, like it. And, and to do that, we, we have to go back in time to April of 1943. And the setting of this story is going to be just off the coast of uh, Huelva, which is a southern part of Spain. And there, uh, off the coast, we have a fisherman who's kind of doing his like normal morning routine, and in there, he sees something off in the water. And in that, he, as he gets closer, he notices that it's a body. And, 
and he recovers it the was spine. the Loch Ness monster <laughs> and that's when I gave him 350 <laughs> uh, but he recovers this body and uh, he begins to inspect this body and he notices something kind of unusual about what he would expect to see off the coast of Spain in the 40s and this is an adult male and he's he's in a well yeah it's coat. a corpse for one thing like <laughs> I, I don't imagine there were a ton of I was gonna say, were they like floating in the canals all the time, yeah. or what? I mean, it's it's World War II. You're 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 bound to find something in 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 the waters. Uh, but this specific body, it's it's an adult male. He's in a trench coat, in a full uniform, and he notices just by like a quick cursory glance, cursory glance, that this is a soldier. And he kind of looks at the uniform, and and in stitched in the uniform is the name William Martin. And, and judging based on the uniform and, and kind of like the symbolism on it, he's able to, to, to deter that it is uh, somebody from the British Royal Marines. And this would be Major William Martin. And Martin had on him uh, some personal items uh, just in the wreckage of his body. He had on him some ticket stubs, some keys, a religious medal, uh, letters from his father and his fiance, And because he is uh, a person... Uh, not too far from our age, he had some unpaid bills uh, and some debtors' yeah, notes course. on his person. Uh, but most of him, he's probably going out to throw those in the ocean. <laughs> he, he meant to throw the bills into the water, but he threw himself. Uh, but but <laughs> don't most, you just hate when that happens? <laughs> but most interestingly, on this body was a chain, and attached uh, on one side was William Martin, but on the other side of this chain was a briefcase. I was hoping you were going to say a clock like Flavor Flav. <laughs> uh, so, so this fisherman immediately alerts uh, kind of the, the Spanish military and the Spanish uh, government. And he's like, hey, I found this pretty seemingly important body. You guys need to look at this. And it's very, very important to note at this point in the war, Spanish is, or Spain is neutral. But the Spanish have a tendency to favor Nazi Germany. They're neutral, but they have leanings and sympathies towards the Axis power and the Nazis specifically. Enemy, enemy of the podcast, 1940s Spain. They, You're on they, notice. <laughs> they tend to kind of be shady. Um, but what, what what happens is the Spanish authorities they end up contacting uh, the local uh, British uh, vice council uh, and basically they're like hey come look at this fucking body we found one of yours and basically what happens is they're like hey this dude had a briefcase attached to him you need to take this body and this briefcase and please get the fuck out of Spain we really don't want this and <laughs> please get the fuck out of Spain is something I hope to hear before I die. <laughs> and and the man that they called uh, basically to come look at this body, uh, the vice counsel, like, he's like, hey, I can't take this, but please notify Britain immediately. They need to know about this. And that kind of sets off like a, a, like a quick little flag for Spain. And they're like, noted. Okay. So basically, also, guys, what are we gonna do with this guy? <laughs> yeah, look at this body. He he's basically just like, hey, you need to notify Britain immediately. I can't take the briefcase of the body. You need to make sure this gets back to Britain, though. 
I did. That's what I called you yes. for, you asshole. Yeah. Basically, he's just like, look, you need to contact somebody higher up than me. I can't handle this shit. This is above my pay grade. So what happens you're the, the one who knows who to... Oh my god, you lazy British ass- asshole. It's just... What happens in the days following is that British authorities in London basically send a series of increasingly frantic messages to Spain. They're like, hey, where is this body in this briefcase? We need to know exactly where this is. Please let us know. We need to send somebody as soon as we can who's qualified to take this from you. It's right here where your stupid fucking desk <laughs> clerk left it because he wouldn't take it. Yeah. What happens, though, is because Spain has Nazi sympathies, they end up also alerting the Germans that this exists. And they're like, hey, the Brits have something here, and they're not telling us what it is, and they're kind of freaking out about it. You should know about this, too. So the Germans get to this briefcase first. And they break into it, and they very slyly and covertly open up the briefcase and the contents inside of it without really breaking any of like the letters or the documents inside. And very, very covertly get the information out of this briefcase. What ends up happening is that they end up finding a very critical piece of information in this briefcase. There's a personal letter from Lieutenant General Archibald Nye, who was the Vice Chief's sorry, Vice Chief Imperial General Staff in London, and he was sending a very, very fucking important letter to Harold Alexander, who was the uh, senior brief, sorry, senior British officer under Eisenhower, who was uh, stationed in, uh, 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 basically, like, right inside kind of, like, the North African, like, close to Spain area. I totally thought you were going to say top briefcase officer. Top briefcase officer, yes. Miss misspoke. Archibald Nye, huh? Yes. If your name is Archibald Nye and you don't get involved in like the intelligence community, <laughs> you are fucking up. He he has or a... Uh, have a child who's a or have a child named Bill who's a famous TV host. <laughs> Honestly, there's there's a bunch of really good names in this, and I was as more the more I read about this, the more I fucking loved everything I was reading. <laughs> Uh, but this letter now that the Germans are in possession of, they find something incredible. Basically, this letter indicates uh, that the Allied armies are preparing to cross the Mediterranean from North Africa into Italy. Sorry, not into Italy, into Greece and other parts of kind of like Europe. And basically that they're going to end up attacking Greece and uh, Sardinia. This is the big ploy that the Allies are going to have. And what is happening is that Hitler is getting words of this, and he's going to move his troops now from Italy to these parts of the world because he just intercepted this huge piece of Allied information that says, we're not attacking Italy, we're attacking Greece and Sardinia. And this is huge because Hitler and Mussolini have been fortifying in Sicily, and now they have firsthand information that the Allied are going to be attacking elsewhere. And Hitler basically tells Mussolini and other people in the area that this measure, the measures to be taken in Sardinia and the Peloponnese have priority over everything else that you're doing right now. The problem is that everything that I've told you until now and everything that Hitler has learned is complete fucking bullshit. I was wondering if that's where this was going, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. this has to be... Uh, so, so they pulled a Lucy... <laughs> They just pulled the football away from Hitler. Yeah. Like, 
this this goes to our commoner frame. How many times have we said it on this podcast? Nazis are idiots, and that includes perhaps most of all the top Nazi himself. Yes. How many times have we told a story where they just made to get look like absolute buffoons? If yes. me sitting here like having like like two seltzers down <laughs> identified what was going on there in a second. How did yeah. the guy who is terrorizing and trying to take over the entire world not catch wind of what was going on there? Yes. Idiots. <laughs> being being a bigot poisons your brain. Yes. This now I will introduce this is the story of Operation Mincemeat <laughs> and William Martin, aka Glenweir Michael, or better known as his name, the man who never was. Wow. So, Operation Mincemeat sounds like it would have been undertaken by Robert Potter. Yeah. <laughs> was the goal just to cut off all the Nazis' dicks? <laughs> yeah. Is there, um, do you think there's just one guy who is hired by the military to just come up with the names <laughs> of all the covert operations? That's the job I want. I want uh, that. Yeah, I want that yeah. job. Honestly, anytime that I've like I've I've done quite a bit of uh, World War II research for this podcast in different episodes, and the more I read about different operations, the more I just fucking love that they're named like either whimsical, on the fucking nose, or just complete bullshit. Operation Invade Peloponnesia. Yeah, yeah. no, I would see because I've got like such a weird random collection of pop culture knowledge. Yeah. They would fucking fire me in a minute. They're going to be like, we are not calling this Operation Wolfman Has Nards. We're not doing it. Um, so let, let's, let's talk. Let's take a, a quick a quick restep. So that body that they found uh, off the Spanish coast, uh, as it turns out, believe it or not, the name William Martin is complete bullshit and fabricated. And the actual corpse of that person was a man by the name of Glinvir Michael, and his name is Welsh, so I know I fucking mispronounced it. It's fine. Uh, but I will refer to him as Michael throughout the rest of this. That was his actual given last name. Uh, Michael, uh, very unfortunate to him, had a very, very poor upbringing. Uh, he ended up being a homeless man. Uh, he was from Abgergode, which uh, was from Monmouthshire in South Wales. Uh, he I was had... going to say, I saw the way that name was spelled. I'm like, this has to be Wales. Yeah, it's there's got to be. There's a there's lot no of vowels. vowels. Word. There's, there's a lot of consonants in the middle of that and not enough vowels. It's it's Welsh as fuck. Uh, but he ended up having part-time jobs as a gardener and a laborer. Unfortunately for him, uh, when he was 15, his dad, who was a coal miner, committed suicide. And his mom died not very far after and really after that, he just kind of lived as a vagabond, uh, lived as a homeless man, kind of drifted, friendless, had no money, was alluded that he had depression, and just kind of basically lived on the streets in London. Which, as it that's, turns out, in the 40s, is not the place you want to live on the streets in. That's like, that's Apparently, even... Apparently, London has sucked always, yeah. based on the last couple episodes. <laughs> so that's even I more think... Dickensian than Jack Shepard was. Yeah, I feel like at this point we're just making an enemy of London because we've just painted it as this this bleak, horrible, horrible hellscape. I'm sorry, we I don't know what yanking... he wants to do. And I'm we not are yanking this that. straight from the history books, guys. Like, I don't I'm, know what you want me to do. The, the image of London is not going to get better in the next couple paragraphs that I have to tell you guys about. So, 
It's not entirely sure if Michael's death was a suicide or just a death by circumstance. We know that he was homeless. And it's believed that he was eating bread scraps. The problem... As one does. ...is that it turns out the bread scraps in London in the 40s may have also been rat traps. Oh. Oh, no. And it's believed that the bread scraps that he got a hold of were completely coated in this rat poison-like paste, which was aimed to kill off the growing rat population in London. But Just to imagine a he ate man, it like, oh, this butter's a little old. <laughs> but to a homeless man, or to somebody who's starving and doesn't give a fuck, it's bread. Yeah, that, see, this is a problem. The problem was that something got lost in translation there culturally. Yes. It, a, you know, a true Londoner would never eat bread. A true Londoner only eats canned beans and mushy peas. <laughs> Proper scram. He was out of hash and had to resort to bread scraps. And this is where I'll, also I'll, organ I'll, me- or- puddings made of organ meat too. Yes. This is where I will plug the uh, the wonderful Twitter account Footy Scram. <laughs> Uh, check that out if you want to see some of the sometimes good, often weird shit that they are serving uh, at low-level soccer matches in the UK. <laughs> uh, but basically, what it, what they believe, again, they're not 100% sure if he killed himself or if he got into this rat poison accidentally. But the rat poison wasn't enough to kill him outright, but essentially just caused his liver to fail over like a period of a couple days. And his body was found in a London warehouse... And was sent off to a morgue. Where it just so happens that two British intelligence officers were looking for a fake body. (laughs) What a job that is. (laughs) And what ends up happening is they're looking for a body that can believably be mistaken on a quick cursory glance for a shipwrecked, like, plane crashed washed on a shore body. So, because again, this plan is that they're going to dump a body in the fucking ocean and someone's going to find it. So they don't need a clean body, they just need a good enough body. I'm wondering what kind of eye test this thing had to pass because if he died of liver failure, he'd be yellow as a fucking Simpsons yeah. character for one thing. Yes. So they wanted a body that looked like it had been uh, basically died of hypothermia and drowning. So they wanted a beat-up body, but not a physically beat-up body, which apparently our rat poison friend Michael happens to fall perfectly in line with. So, we have a body. What is the actual plan here? And, well, to kind of do that, we kind of need to understand what the real plan was. And there's something that I found fascinating, and this is kind of the I think the best historical nugget in the story. And it brings us to what's called the trout memo. The trout memo. And the trout. That that sounds like some shit that I would call one of our episodes. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the trout memo is honestly genius. Basically it was a set of plans based in deception wartime methods. So it's essentially a memo. I thought it was a memo directing them to draft Mike Trout for their baseball team. <laughs> I, had a, I, had a, I, I had a similar riff. My version was going to be, a, a, it's a memo finally explaining how it's possible the Angels haven't made the playoffs in two decades. 
<laughs> yes, every every MLB organization has the Trout Memo, and it's got different subtext. But basically, what the Trout Memo is, and I'm going to read word for word what I found in my research. Uh, the Trout Memo reads in part, The Trout Fisher casts uh, patiently all day. He frequently changes his venue and his lures. If he has frightened fish, he may give the water rest for half an hour, but his main endeavor is to still attract the fish by something he sends out from his boat. He is incessant. This is a memo basically saying, we're going to catch you fuckers by deception. I don't care how patient I have to be. See, that just sounds like a bunch of insane nonsense to me. But, uh, you know, British government, uh, do what you do. Insane nonsense it may have been, as the memo goes on to list 54 ways that the enemy, like a trout, may be fooled or lured in. It's literally a think tank of ideas on how to trick the Nazis. What, you couldn't get them with the old dollar bill on a string trick? (laughs) I mean, these guys are dumber than dog shit. But herein lies the great brilliance in this plan, is quite a few brilliant people had a hand in the Trout Memo. See, this was written by Admiral John Godfrey and his assistant, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. Wait a, wait a minute. Yes, go ahead. Ian Fleming, the guy who wrote the James Bond books? The exact same to Ian Fleming. I knew he was in military intelligence. This I did not know. That's really cool. Yes. This is starting to make a lot more sense, yes. Yes. So this Grandmaster spy plan is literally written by James Bond. And what ends up happening now, is... Up. Yes. I want to give you all the trout memory. <laughs> so, so Ian Fleming has a huge part in this. And his main part is that he had read a previous story by a man named Basil Thompson, who is the former head of Scotland Yard's criminal investigation unit. Love a British guy named Basil. So yes. perfect. I mean, I think they, they pretty much universally pronounce it Basil, which right. is even funnier. Well, what are Fuck they it, doing? I'm English. Um, but, <laughs> so, so Thompson is the author of quite a few detective stories himself. Uh, but his 1937 book, The Milliner's Hat Mystery, has a very interesting plot. And that book begins with the body of a dead man carrying a set of documents that turn out to be bullshit. <laughs> Now He mined this for his shitty mystery writing career. <laughs> now, how Ian Fleming could make that logical jump, I have no idea. But he managed to take a story on a body with forged documents and turn it into a real-life story about a body with forged documents. So, we have what happened. We have who made it happen. How did this actually play out after the Germans got this information, though? So basically, something huge has to happen. And the Brits know this. Basically, they have to understand that they're shipping off this body and so many dominoes have to fall in a row for this to happen. Uh, The Spanish have to find this. They have to report it correctly. The Germans have to get wind of this. They have to understand it to be true. And they have to essentially act on it with the knowledge that they're acting on it quicker than the Brits are. So, like, so so many amazing bullshit things have to happen in a row. As we've established, the last part of that plan is pretty easy money because, again, the Nazis are really dumb. Yes. (laughs) So what ends up happening 
is the Brits have a man on the inside named uh, Francis Halston. And he plays his part in this by basically desperately trying to get the briefcase back for the Brits. And his entire plan is to look diligent in getting this, but he can't be too diligent. Because essentially they're also tricking the Spanish here. And they have to make sure that the Brits get this information second. So he's essentially like running a half step behind the Germans being like, no, don't get there first. I want that. But he's not making it look too desperate in either one direction. And basically, uh, they would go on to say that the Germans uh, must be made to believe that they had gained access to the documents undetected. They should be made to assume that the British believed the Spanish had returned the documents unopened and unread. They wanted to essentially lose this foot race that everyone else is running but them. And they officially knew that they had won this race because in mid-May 1943, Winston Churchill, who was visiting D.C. at the time, gets a telegram coded and uncoded. That telegram simply reads, Mincemeat swallowed rod, line and sinker. <laughs> Mincemeat okay. swallowed rod, huh? Yeah. Swallowed the whole rod. And I imagine that's not the first time Winston Churchill got that memo. <laughs> so what is happening now is this sets up the Allies to be pretty perfectly aligned. They are targeting Sicily here, which is the southern island in Italy. And essentially they're trying to go from North Africa to Sicily to set up a huge land opportunity to then expand further into Germany as well as up into Italy and essentially attack the Axis on multiple points. And they're subverting the Germans to thinking that they're going to Greece and other parts of more Eastern Europe. So what ends up happening is that there's a very, very important German intelligence officer who gets this bit of information. And he plays the biggest, dumbest role in this entire fucking story. He's the Patrick Star of this story. He is my sub guy, my Patrick Star, Major Carl Heinrich Kurlenthal. I mispronounced that, but I don't care because he's a fucking Nazi. Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> I hope he got it wrong. Yes. So What's his, he... Is his family going to call and complain? <laughs> yes, please. From Brazil uh... or wherever the fuck they are now? <laughs> Argentina, yeah. yeah. So what ends up happening is he's a big, big like first buyer of this entire story. And he is somebody who personally flew the documents to Berlin and essentially presented these to Hitler and like high ranking German officials. And is like, look, we got dirt that the English are going to go bomb Greece. So we need to move shit there now. And the reason um, that Carl was so in line with this is one, he was a fucking idiot. And two, as it turns out, he kind of needed this to work. He had basically put his entire career on being like the Nazis go to man and wanted to be so involved in getting information to the Nazis and making them look good, which in turn would make him look good because he was secretly Jewish and wanted to cover <laughs> that up. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. 
Uh, it was written later on that Carl was a one-man espionage, espionage disaster area uh, <laughs> because of this. That's, that's not and, a good label to get. That's... And essentially, he would take in any information and try to pass it off to make himself look better because of all of his huge, huge, huge flaws. Because he was essentially a Nazi just gaslighting everybody and like trying to make himself look better. So I just much keep so... picturing. I just keep picturing Frank Drebin from The Naked Gun. <laughs> The, the one the one time imposter syndrome was correct. Yeah. Like, yes, you actually shouldn't be there, and you actually are terrible at what you're doing. Yes. Uh, so much so that one of his, uh, it was said that one of his key assets was a little-known Spaniard by the name of Juan Paulo Garcia. Oh. A.K.A. a former spy that I talked about in episode 18, Chicken Friends. So this guy, this guy's getting clowned on just left and right? By fucking everybody, because he's taking all of the information he gets, not vetting it, and just sending it up the fucking line. I, I'm actually, I know he's an evil piece of shit, but I am thankful yes. for this guy, in a way, for yes. being as gullible as he was. I was yeah. going to say, if he was better at his job, things might have turned out yeah. differently, so I'm glad he sucked so bad. I'm glad that you said that, because basically, because he's so gullible... And is an advocate so hard for these documents, there's really not much time, area, or space to really look into them more clearly. Uh, like I said, the, the Spanish had this body that they had gotten washed up. And basically, in order to maintain their secrecy in terms of like not letting people know that they were aware of this, they didn't really look into much about that body. Had they talked to the coroner who had the fucking corpse, the coroner would have told them that the body was far too decomposed to have been in the water for the brief amount of time that it was expected, and would have also told them that basically the papers that were in his pockets were older than what was anticipated, and it everything was bullshit about the corpse from minute one. But the Germans were so worried about being found out with this huge gold mine of intelligence that they didn't really vet the gold mine of intelligence that they had. So, so you're telling me that the Nazis didn't think things through? The Nazis did not look at science, as it would turn out. I have trouble believing that. Yes. So what ends up happening is all of this ends up going off. The Nazis are out of position. The Allied forces are able to make a pretty clean, all things considered for World War II, sweep of Sicily. Uh, Hitler had moved out so many fucking troops from this area. Um, Hitler was previously had a disposition to believe that this was going to happen, and this information enforced his belief. But basically, he told Mussolini that his priority was uh, to defend Sardinia and Greece at all costs. And honestly, Hitler at this time really wasn't fully believing in the Italians in that they were still mostly neutral and he believed that the Italians were going to like give up and surrender anyway. So he was like, I don't want my troops in Italy anyway. Also, at this point, Operation Barclay is happening, which is a bigger scope of this entire operation. So all of this is kind of just like Hitler saying, I'm getting the fuck out of Italy, and I've got reason <laughs> and information that tells me what I want to know, so I'm getting the fuck out anyway. You know what? On second yeah, that thought, worked out I, great for him. On second thought, I hate olive oil. 
Um, Too damn much garlic. Yes. So by the end of June, German troops strength in Sardinia had doubled to 10,000 troops. Uh, they had also sent over aircraft. Uh, they had sent over torpedo boats that were originally stationed outside of Sicily, which would have helped massively in an invasion. Those had been moved. Uh, seven different German units, including Panzer units, had been moved away from this area. And uh, on July on July 9th, the Allies invaded Sicily in Operation Husky. Again, another great fucking name, just for no reason. Uh, and basically, the Germans had shown that even hours after the Sicily invasion, that like they still didn't believe that this was the end goal, and they thought this was a diversion for something bigger in Greece and Sardinia. And essentially, Hitler is so dug into his dumb ideas that he's ignoring everything the fuck else that's happening. I love it when Hitler tries yes. to outthink everybody else because yes. it always ends up hilariously bad. Yes. And uh, it's one of those things where if Hitler was maybe had a different like thing happen 45 times, maybe it would have been different, but he fucked up a lot. And uh, for more about this dynamic, uh, check out the wonderful 2004 German film Downfall, which is, <laughs> yep. which is the one where you get uh, the yes. Hitler reacts scene from. Except yes. uh, it's he's not talking about like, well, I'm, the I'm new not even, Xbox. Yeah, the new Xbox or whatever sports. Yeah. Was, I haven't watched those yeah. in so long. I don't even remember my, what. One of my favorite early internet memes. It was Hitler reacts to blank. Oh, that's you just opened yep. up a memory for me. That's a classic, like 2010, 11 ish. I think there was oh, one. I think God. there was a Hitler reacts to Albert Pujols signing with the Angels. That's how long ago. It yeah. Was. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so basically this is a huge blow to the Germans. It also ends up leading to the downfall of Mussolini, uh, as essentially Mussolini is basically stripped of power shortly after this because of how big of a fuck-up this is, all, all told. Uh, all of this because a, a scamp of a Welshman died on rat poisoning in, an, uh, in a warehouse, was then dropped in the Spanish Ocean. <laughs> helps lead to one of the better known like German fuck-ups in the world World War II also is um, apparently going to be a Netflix movie shortly uh, after this is posted. I didn't know that until after I started researching more about this. I'm very excited to read that. There's also a book um, that I want to get a lot of great information. There was a great uh, New Yorker article that listed so much and kind of summarized that book for me which is where I got a lot of this information. Uh, but that's the amazing story of the man who never was, um, a.k.a. Operation Mincemeat. My big question to you guys, though, uh, you get to drop something on the Nazis just to fuck with them. What are you going to drop on the Nazis? Um, I am going to drop the fake secret plans for um my my moose and squirrel friends to establish a new country in axis territory called musylvania and uh hitler will take the bait completely and start establishing a perimeter in oh i guess fucking i don't know i i'd make it somewhere crappy like siberia see if i can send him all the way to russia as long as you tell hitler that you're gonna hide jews there he's absolutely taking that bait i am going to uh uh I'm just going to drop a bunch of cow shit on him to see how long it takes him to yell, That's poop! <laughs> That's my whole plan. I uh, Another thing 
was another possibility is you know in world war ii everybody got trench foot real bad mm-hmm. yeah um that was a so what i was gonna do is send uh a bunch of what is disguised in packages as like talcum powder or foot powder but it's actually itching powder <laughs> oh that's good or yeah. it's like the uh, the old bit where you, you drop the little rascals uh, uh world war ii you, plan you, you drop extra large condoms but you mark them as small and you make the germans <laughs> feel inferior <laughs> Good answers, both of you, though. I love those. All right. Well, uh, what a fun episode that was. Three great topics. Um, so hopefully you had as much fun as we did. That will wrap things up for us here at Here's a Guy this week. Um, we'll be back with you next week for three more fun tales, assuredly. So for now, let's go around the horn and everybody can hawk their shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me over on Twitter. I'm at Son of Gravy for 2069. You can find me here weekly on Here's a Guy. Um, you can find me over every once in a while monkeying around on Jack's Twitch channel. Um, and you can find me on PorkFreak.co. Oh, boy. Don't go there. <laughs> I hope one day we have enough money that we can buy out PorkFreak.co. Yeah, how much does it cost to buy a domain from like a scam? Like, I imagine if I threw, if I PayPal'd them twenty five dollars, I'm sure I could get it. I can't imagine that's a particularly lucrative scam either. <laughs> no. Anyway, Jack, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jackton Jose, and coming soon uh, this month, May fifteenth, find all of us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Here's an Adventure, the brand new D and D campaign that we're all running with our great friend Pookie. Uh, we're launching an entirely new channel. Uh, dedicated entirely to the dumbass hijinks that all of us will be t- partaking in. So please check that out uh, again. Twitch.tv slash here's an adventure. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm going to play a bird. That's going to be interesting. But yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lizard man. I'm a, we, I'm a boisterous, uh, boisterous Scottish lizard man. Yeah. We've got a lizard man, a bird man, and I'm a pro wrestler. <laughs> yeah. For, 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 you know, <laughs> it's a stretch for anyway, all of us, I'm sure. If that's not enough to get you to get you there, I don't know what is. So, uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin the number four P R E Z. Follow the podcast account. Here's a guy pod. I had a little poem today uh, to to preview the episode. For so for more of that kind of kind of neat stuff, follow the uh, the follow the podcast account. Uh, also, feel free to send us any feedback to uh, our mailbox which is here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Yeah, um, hit us up with those favorite Star Wars side characters from all of you. Yes. I want to know what you guys think. If there was any that we, uh, if there was any if you, we missed if out. If you say then, yeah. Jar Jar, we're banning you. Um, in the alternative, also feel free to like uh, DM the Twitter account, however you want to get a hold of us. We'd, we'd love to hear from you all. So, um, so we'll wrap things up with that. Um, great time had by all. To take us home, Cody, do you have a tagline? I do. All righty. Well, we hope to have you here again with us next week when who knows what kind of hilarity will ensue. So uh, good night, everybody. Cody, hit us with that tagline. Nazis. Still stupid. Bye, daddies. <laughs>